Father God, we just want to come before you once again and, and just recognize that, uh, that you uh, call us to do amazing things, uh, that in the case of what John just shared, that you tap us on the shoulder sometimes and opens up, up, up doors we never would expect it. Uh, and the, sometimes it, it's as grand and big as, uh, as donating part of ourselves to help someone else live. Uh, and and uh, if, that, if that's what you're calling us to, give us the courage to step into that. Other times it, it may be something small that just a kind word or speaking to somebody may just change the trajectory of their day, which who knows what the outcome of that may be. But may we be people who can hear your promptings uh, to, to work to, uh, to help uh, bring a little bit of joy and a little bit of heaven into this world. God, as we approach your scripture now, we just pray that you can speak to us through it, that, uh, that, we, can, uh, that we hear what you're trying to share with us through in, in, the, in, the, in the scripture we look at today throughout the series of, of living lives of authenticity, uh, undivided, uh, lives in which um, we are constantly striving to, to follow you in all things. We pray this in your name. Amen. Sorry, I'm, I'm finishing fighting a cold, so I'm going to try my best not to hack into the mic, um, but I may need to stop a couple times to, to get water, too. So, All right. So last week, Tom kicked off a new series for us, one we've been calling The Undivided Self. Uh, Tom did a great job setting up this series. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, you can listen back online. But he started by showing us that our lives are meant to be constant all the way through. The core of what we are and what we do is meant to follow Jesus' lead. Right, last week we looked at 2 Corinthians, a city wrestling with what it means to be a complete follower of Jesus. We looked particularly at a story in which they were wondering whether they could eat meat or not that had been sacrificed to idols. Right? They're asking, are we following Jesus if we do that? And Paul's answer to that question is that you're asking the wrong question. What they're trying to figure out is, if we do this thing, are we in? If we don't, are we out? And in that city in particular, that question was difficult because uh, in the city of Corinth at that time, if you bought meat at a market, it was sacrificed to Zeus, right? So like, essentially the equivalent around here would be that if you bought meat at Meyer and brought it home, uh, before it gets to Meyer, it would have been blessed by the temple of Zeus. And so they're asking the question, can we eat meat bought in the market? And what Paul is saying is, that's not the right question. It's not about doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. It's all about your heart posture. It's all about whether or not you believe, whether you believe that this is actually a gift dedicated to Zeus or if it's just meat, uh, or if you are going to be hurting somebody else in the midst of that. We kind of brought it back to the key point that runs through the book of Corinthians, and that's, that's the line that is, whatever you do, whether in work, work or in deed, do it for the glory of Jesus. It's trying to live the kind of life in which every single thing that we do uh, is pointing us back to Jesus. Tom showed us that the undivided life isn't about knowing which rules to follow when, but instead about knowing Jesus, trusting that he wants what's best for us, and then living that way every day. And Tom gave us some great tools to begin doing that as well. Now the theme, that everything that we do, we do for the glory of God, is going to pull itself through, uh, through every week from here on out. We're going to be asking the question, how do we live an undivided life in, in many places that we find ourselves in this world. Because that kind of consistency isn't easy, is it? it is, e is it even possible, we have to ask, to be the same person at work that we are at home? Because at work, maybe you're the boss. You have responsibility and you need to make decisions, right? When you're, when you're with your buddies, however, 
you're more than happy to let everyone else maybe make the decisions. And so how, is that a different kind of person? Is that a divided person? Or is that just moving into those different roles? When you're with your neighbors, there are expectations. Maybe you have HOA rules or social norms that don't really matter when you're with your family. And so you act differently in those situations. When you vote, you realize it's really hard to find someone who lines up with everything you believe. So what do you do there? Yeah, at the end of this series, we actually are going to be tackling politics a little bit. So, so that, um, that, that'll be interesting. See, the fact of the matter, though, is the world is complicated and messy, and not everything fits into nice little boxes. Not everything requires the same kind of reaction, which makes it really difficult for us, then, to feel undivided. And so I want to push you all back to Tom's message last week where he said undividedness doesn't mean sameness necessarily. Living as a follower of Jesus can be done different in different roles, which require different things. Jesus himself interacted with people differently. When he was talking with the hurting, he was unbelievably gentle. We see it over and over again. But then there were times in which he was fighting for justice, where he was extremely forceful, at one point flipping tables over in the temple. Well, at the same time, there were times in which you think he might have been fighting for justice, but he remained silent. And in those different spaces, he acts differently, and yet there's a consistency of his character and the person that he is. So the goal of this series is to begin exploring how we find a consistency of character through all of these different spheres. And today, we're going to get started with the one I think might be the hardest for many of us. I know it is for me. Uh, And... Jen was going to be here, and it was going to be harder when she was sitting there, but she had a migraine as well this morning, same as Lisa, so she's probably watching from home, which might make it a little easier for me, because the hardest place, I think, for many of us is an undivided self in our home life. See, my biggest fear as a pastor is to be viewed as a hypocrite. It is. Uh, It's my job to stand up here and teach on the Bible most weeks to help guide this group of people towards the kind of life that Jesus leads us into. And for some reason, you you guys come back each week and listen to my stupid jokes or me blow the uh, announcements in the morning or some moderately insightful takes from time to time, I hope. But the problem is that sometimes people think because I'm teaching about the kind of life God wants us to live, they think that I've got it all figured out for myself. And so, one of my biggest fears is that I would be viewed as a hypocrite. And I think the reason I'm so fearful of it is that, if I'm honest, sometimes I am a hypocrite. It's just true. My family would be able to tell you that. Jen would be able to. My girls would be able to tell you that. There are times that I don't practice what I preach. And the worst part about it is that most often happens at home with my family. Tom shared a passage with us last week that just speaks so pointedly into that. It was Romans 7, verse 18, if we could throw that up on the screen, in which Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. I'm going to be honest, I am so glad Paul wrote those words. Because they were true for him. And they're true for me as well. And my guess is they're true for all of us. That we have sections of our life where we desperately want to make sure that we're not hypocrites. That we practice exactly what we preach. And yet, the good we want to do, we don't do. And the thing that we don't want to do, that is what we keep doing. 
You see, the thing is, I want to be the best dad I can possibly be. I want my kids to feel loved and supported. I want them to feel seen and cared for. I want them to feel safe and learn that to feel their feels in the right kinds of way. I want that more than anything. And I've not always carried that out well. I've lost my temper. I've squashed their feelings because I didn't want to deal with it at that particular time. I've over or underreacted to things. I failed to be present, present for some moments that I should have been more present for. It's all real. The fact of the matter is I want to be the best husband I can be. I want Jen to feel loved and cared for and supported in everything that she does. And there are times where I've hurt her as bad as anyone has. There are times where I've been spiteful or impatient. I want to come home and be a person of peace, of centeredness, physically, emotionally, spiritually thriving. I want all of those things. And there are days that I know that I should work out, but I don't. Or read my Bible and I don't. Or pray or be calm or collected, but I can be impatient and short sometimes. I should be present, but instead I scroll. Truthfully, sometimes I'm a hypocrite. And, it play, and, and if I'm honest, the place happens the most is at home. Maybe some of you can relate to that. So then how do we live as an undivided self at home? And that's what we're going to explore today. Paul actually gives us a great example of what that looks like in his relationship with one of his disciples. So Paul had a group of disciples as well, and one of them that, we, that is featured prominently throughout the Bible is someone named Timothy. And so we're going to actually begin in Acts 14. Now I'm just going to summarize this story for you, uh, because in Acts 14 here, actually can we go to the map first? In Acts 14, Paul is traveling on one of his missionary journeys, and he comes to a city called Lystra. So you can see it right there in the middle of the map, right below Iconium in, the, in Turkey. Uh, also, if you want to go visit that city, we're going to Turkey in October. You're welcome to come join us. You can sign up for that. It'll be great. Just a little pitch. Uh, uh, but Paul's going on a missionary journey, and, and Paul and his buddy Barnabas, in this case, get to the city of Lystra. And in Lystra, they come in and begin to preach the gospel. Now, Something interesting happens when they get there, though. Uh, Paul, uh, when they get to the city and they start preaching the gospel of Jesus, the peop- they also heal someone who is sick. When that happens, obviously then the city is amazed by the miracle that takes place there, and they believe that they now have just witnessed Zeus and Hermes come to their city. Now, there's a reason that they believe that, too. It's because there was a myth in the city of Lystra that Zeus and Hermes had come to visit them, and nobody noticed that they had come through the city and the whole city missed it. And so then there was a series of earthquakes that they blamed on that. So in everybody's mind, they realized that sometimes gods like Zeus and Hermes will come visit and you better not miss them or bad things will happen. So when Paul heals somebody, they go, Zeus is back, we're not going to miss him this time. And so they gather the whole city to come up and, uh, and, and essentially give sacrifices to Paul, who they think is Hermes, because he talks a lot, apparently, uh, and then Barnabas, who must be bigger, and they thought he was Zeus, right? Um, so the people get all riled up, and while that's happening, there's another group of people who are trying to protect pr- traditional Judaism, and they see this as an opportunity to be rid of Paul and Barnabas forever. And that's where we pick it up in Acts 14. 
even with these words. So that, what that means is Paul actually tells the city, hey, I'm not Zeus, actually, or not Hermes, actually, and Barnabas is not Zeus. I need you all to know that. He says it, and we pick it up in Acts 14. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So the crowd gets whipped up into this frenzy, and they end up stoning Paul so badly they actually think he's dead. Now, clearly, Lystra then can't be Paul's favorite place, right? We get that. We won't blame him for that. If it's me, I never go back there, ever. But Paul does. He moves back around, and if you actually looked at the map, you can see he goes to Derby and then ends up looping back to Lystra for a particular reason. He goes back to the city for Timothy. In Acts 16, it says, Paul came to Derby, then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, for whose, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. When Paul is in Lystra, not being stoned, he meets somebody named Timothy. And a person who becomes important enough to him to go back to the city that tried to kill him not that much longer, not that much earlier. Timothy's a believer in Lystra. Paul has heard about him, so he risks going back to get him to take him along. And as a result, the two of them end up developing an extremely close relationship. Actually, Paul writes him two letters specifically. It's the book of First and Second Timothy in the Bible. And in that space, <coughs> I'm sorry, Paul, Paul speaks about Timothy in a way he doesn't speak about anyone else. At the beginning of Timothy, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then verse 18 again, Timothy, my son. Paul doesn't talk about anyone else like that. He, Paul and Timothy develop kind of a father-son kind of relationship. One in which uh, he views Timothy as a son. Paul, the, Paul assumes the role of caretaker for Timothy. He feels a responsibility for him. Strong enough one that he's willing to go back to Lystra to get him. Which is our first example of what it looks like to live as an undivided self at home. The first step to, when we're trying to figure out how we can live as an undivided self at home is to understand the role we've been given, whether that's as a parent or a caretaker, whether it's as a spouse, or if we live alone as just a disciple of Jesus, what is my role at home in that case? See, we know that understanding our role shapes us, right? That when we understand what the purpose of that position is, then it begins to shape the way that we do things. When we're at work, for instance, we discipline ourselves to stay within that role, don't we? We understand where the, where the boundaries are, what's acceptable, what's not, and to do the job that we do well, we can create a container for that, right? To stay with inside that role. Why do we do that? Because if we don't, we wouldn't have that job anymore, right? If we don't actually discipline ourselves to do, to do the role that we've been given, then we don't get to do that role anymore. And here's one of the, where the, one of the big differences at home here is one of the big differences at home. It's a lot harder to lose your role at home. Now, not impossible, and some of you have experienced that, unfortunately. But it is harder, and so sometimes we can take it for granted. See, the temptation for many of us is to use all our energy at work, keeping that container in check, and then we're out of energy when we get home. Has anyone ever been there before? I think many of us, right? 
The stakes feel lower. So your energy is for work, home is for relaxation. And so often what, we, what happens is we lose sight of our role at home and the importance of it. We don't realize that, that, that the role that we have at home is equally, if not more, important than the one we have at work, whether it's a father or spouse or disciple or whatever it might be. And when we lose sight of that, we don't prioritize our energy the right way. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world am I going to find energy to be on all the time? We can't do that. It's not sustainable. Because that's the struggle for many of us, isn't it? We're on all day long, and so we get home, and we don't have the energy to keep it up anymore. Maybe the best example of this is if you, ever live, if you live with a student. Have any of you ever been to a parent-teacher conference in which, yours, which the teacher tells you how great your kid is at school? And then you're like, what? <laughs> because you're watching them literally pull each other's hair out next to you. Yeah, anybody been there before? It's the same kind of idea. The kids can go to school. They can, put the, they can do the role they have to do at school. And so when they get home, they're done. And so then it's... Bickering and fighting. It doesn't happen in my house, don't worry. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so we start with, the, with understanding our role, then what? And this actually is the most important part. Paul shows us this with Timothy as well. We see that in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, which says this. You, however, know... So Paul is writing to Timothy specifically. You, Timothy, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kind of things have happened to me in Antioch, Icodium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know, that, know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." See, what we see here in this particular passage is Paul modeling a life for Timothy. And I think this is where the breakdown comes for many of us, myself included. For years, I thought the key to being a good parent, spouse, person, whatever it might be, was figuring out the tools that I needed to guide my family members or myself, or the habits I needed to control myself. Right? My kids will learn to be good people if we use this particular parenting method or these particular rules. My spouse will care for me and I for her in the right way if only we can master this communication technique. I'll be the kind of person I want to be if I can learn how to keep my patience or build this routine or whatever it might be. Now, don't get me wrong. Models, methods, practices, they all have their place. They can be extremely helpful. But they're tools. They're disciplines and they have their limits. A communication tool can be extremely helpful with your spouse, but if we don't work, uh, but they don't work if your heart's not in it. If you don't actually want to see change, if you don't actually want to change, you can use the communication method perfectly, and you won't get anywhere. Maybe you bicker less, fight less, but you won't change the relationship. A parenting tool can be extremely helpful, 
as long as you're working to model the kind of behavior you want your kids to see. We've all seen places in which, we, which a parenting method can be run flawlessly, and yet kids will, 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 be, will grow and be developed more by observing the person that's actually delivering it. A devotional discipline or a workout routine or a prayer habit, all of those things can be helpful, but if we don't have a heart change, we just quit doing them. See, the truth is, we don't have the energy to keep the container up all the time. That's why so many of us struggle to do it. If we generally want to see things be different at home, we need to work to be different. We actually need to work each day to have the core of who we are be shaped to look more like Jesus. There's a reason that throughout the scripture, the language they use there is, is stark. Paul will talk about putting to death the old self and then putting on the new. Or take off, remove completely and destroy the old stuff to fill it with new stuff. It's the image of actually saying, I need to get rid of something and put something new on. I need to have a fundamental significant change in myself if I'm going to see something different. It's the hardest thing that we have to do. And it's why the Bible uses language like die to yourself. See, if we understand the roles we've been given, we understand, then we begin to understand the necessity of having to do that. Of realizing that if, that if I want to have a different kind of relationship with my spouse, I need to train my heart to get rid of the old misconceptions that I had and actually move towards her in love each and every day. Now, before we move on, I want to circle back to where we started this message, to where Tom kicked us off last week. We could, at this point, be feeling the weight of the charge that we've been given to, to actually work to change our hearts. And, and for some sense, that's good. This is a weighty charge. But it's also possible that it could be producing a crippling guilt. I know that at men's group, I wasn't able to make it because I had the cold last week, but I know that's something that got talked about in men's group last week, that, that, that many of us feel like we aren't doing the things that we should be doing at home, and so it produces a guilt or a shame in us. There's a difference between feeling the weight of needing to do something different and being crippled by shame. See, I, we realize that we haven't modeled the faith life the way we want to. We haven't done the work we need to at home, or whatever we might be feeling in the midst of that. And so I opened the way I did this message on, perfect, on, on, on purpose. I wanted to admit I'm not the perfect father. Actually, there's some examples of me being a pretty crappy one if, you were to, if we were to air out all the laundry. I'm not the perfect husband, and actually there's some examples of me being a pretty crappy one if Jen were to tell all her stories. I'm not the perfect disciple or any of those things. And the fact is, neither are you. You're not. Paul wasn't, and we know that from the Romans passage we looked at. Peter wasn't. He, 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 he betrays Jesus at one of the most critical moments. But the fact is, in the Old Testament, Moses wasn't either. David wasn't, and I could keep going. Throughout the scriptures, what we see is a whole bunch of people who weren't perfect at the charge that they've been given. You aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner, meaning I regularly miss the mark. The thing that I aim at, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Now, I think 
in some ways, we can make that really trite, right? There's a triteness to it. I'm not, no one's perfect. But the fact that so many of us become crippled with guilt means that we don't actually believe it for ourselves, though. We say no one is perfect, but the thought we have in our head is, but I should be. If that's our mindset, you're never going to get anywhere. You'll get discouraged and heart change immediately because you'll realize that it's two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. We think to ourselves, no one is perfect, but I should be. And the actual truth is, no, you shouldn't. You can't be. It's impossible. We saw it in the Romans passage, but we also see it in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Paul says it. You're not perfect. The good, Paul says, I'm not perfect. The good I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. John says, if you actually say you don't mess up, then you're a liar. Right? You are not and cannot be perfect. And again, I know there's a triteness, but let that actually sink in. Does that mean the wrong things that we do are okay? No, of course not. But it does mean we don't need to spend our energy beating ourselves up for when we fail, because it's inevitable. Especially because it's energy that would be much better used to actually make some heart change. Which then leads us to the final part of Paul's example. We start by seeing our personal role at home. We then begin to intentionally move into the kind of life God calls us to. Not by just adding new tools, but actually allowing our hearts to be transformed. Realizing that job's big in which we will fail sometimes, which moves us into the final part that we come back to so often in Scripture. And that's the realization that we cannot and are not alone in this process. In Romans 16, 21, Paul says this, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, J Jason, and uh, Sosipater. Anybody want to try that one? My fellow Jews, right? Timothy and Paul begin, uh, begin an apparent-child kind of relationship and eventually move into a partnership. Timothy becomes a big part of Paul's life, in particular later in his life when he's in prison. Timothy eventually starts doing the same work as Paul. And what we see in this modeling is that there's a, there's a season in which that sometimes the, the, your, your children can become partners with you, but, but partners are required and necessary. If you remember back, when Paul gets, goes to get Timothy, he has a partner in that one too. Him and Barnabas go. But Paul, throughout his ministry life, has partners, whether it's Silas, Lucius, Jason, Paul's fellow Jews, all of these other people. In Paul's example, what we see is we see him understand his role. We see him then model the kind of life he wants him to live, and he, we see him do it with partners next to him. You're not perfect. You can't be, and so you need the help of those around you. Whether it is your partner at home, your spouse, or whether it, it, it's a good group of close friends or a mentor or a counselor, whichever fits best with you, let other people help you in the areas that you're weak. No matter how insightful you are, you can't see all your blind spots. We saw it, like I said, we mentioned that in men's group it was that way. Just coming to go, hey guys, I'm trying to be the best husband, father, whatever I can be, and yet I know I'm not doing well. What are you guys doing? What are some of the things that you've seen or the different ways that you've been able to change your heart posture? And in the midst of that, we all are better because of it. 
part of living an undivided life, so living an undivided life at home requires all three of those things. It requires us to understand our role and take it seriously. That your role as a husband, father, disciple, whatever it might be, or wife, uh, mother, or disciple as well, works in, we don't need to genderize it. Your role in that space is, is as important, if not more important, than any other role that you have. And you need to treat it that way. When we begin to realize that, then we realize, well, then to, to do that well, like, it's not just a series of containers that keep me in to keep me from doing the wrong things, but actually seeking to transform who I am because Jesus works inside of me. And then we can begin to model that and, and actually change the way that we interact with people and deepen those particular relationships. And we realize that's extremely hard and we're going to screw it up so we need each other to do it well. What this community here is, what we're trying to do here, is trying to help us do that so we can live undivided at home. For the next few weeks, we'll look at the same kind of idea at work or school, with our, in our neighborhoods, as a citizen of the country that we live in. What does it look like to be undivided in all of those spaces? And it's going to keep coming back to the same kind of things that we look at here, is allowing ourselves to be transformed by Christ so that, we be, that, that the old is gone and the new has come. When we're willing to take those moments, all of a sudden, the work of keeping the container up doesn't matter as much because the person that we are is different and the container isn't even needed anymore. One of the things that I am most excited about in this community is that I think we have a little bit of a head start there because we've been willing to be honest with each other. We sit in, in different spaces. If you don't have a space where you could admit you're not perfect, you should find one. And what I mean by that is, specifically, anybody who's sat in men's group where we can go, hey, I'm messing this thing up, knows how cathartic that is. Just to be able to admit, I'm not doing the thing I'm supposed to do the right way. Neither was Paul, neither is John, neither was Moses, David, all of it. Because in those spaces, when we could be authentic in that way, we can begin to move into a different and better way. I know I've shared this with you before. One of the most powerful things a counselor ever told me is that I was, I was in this strange cycle where I wasn't changing anything. And what he had pointed out to me, it was because I hadn't admitted where I actually was. I wanted to think I was holy in here. And he goes, but actually you're back here. And what he said to me is you can't, you're not actually going to change if you're doing work on an illusion. It rocked me. My point of it all is that we can be a community here in which we can actually show our, air our dirty laundry with each other because we realize that all of us are in the same boat there. And that in that space, it changes something in the midst of us where we can actually help each other become the kind of undivided people that we all want to be. The beauty of that, like we said each week, like Tom set us up for last week, is that the more and more we become transformed into what Christ wants for us, the better kind of life we experience for ourselves and for the community around us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you this morning and, and just admit to ourselves and to you, to each other, that we are not perfect. That there are times in our lives in which we're hypocrites, that we say one thing and do another, that the good that we want to do far too often is not what we actually do, but what we don't want to do, unfortunately, too often is. We know that, that we all have fallen short, that, that, we all, that we, none of us can claim to be sinless, 
None of us can claim that we haven't missed the mark. And so, God, we pray that you give us the courage to admit that to ourselves if we're deceiving ourselves, to find a group of people that we can, we can talk with as well. And, Lord, we pray that then you can move us from that space into a place in which we actually let parts of ourselves die, the parts that are holding us back, so that you can resurrect in us something new and beautiful. May we be the kind of people who live undivided at home, whether we live by ourselves or with others around us, people who, are, who discipline ourselves to model the kind of life that you've called us into, to then be transformed into the kind of people that can't help it. God, help us be a community that can spur one another on and care for each other in the, in the difficult process of becoming the undivided people you hope us to be. Amen.